Now, as I mentioned, we're in for a real treat today. It's our privilege to be hosting Ellen and Kyle Benefield. And um, gosh, I've known Ellen from the time, it seems like since you were born, but I know it's not quite that long. And then I watched her uh, invite her then-boyfriend Kyle to the vineyard and watched him go through a life change and meet Jesus. And then they served as interns on our staff at the vineyard in Urbana and decided to abandon their personal desires for life and follow God's calling to plant a vineyard church in Mazatlan in a colonia called Dona Chinita, where they've been there almost five years now, right? Summer of 07. And it's just been so cool. You know, whenever I'm discouraged in my faith and I think what a slug I am and, uh, you know, like I just look to them because I they're the real deal. They are, you know, people who have sold their lives to follow Jesus and their, their life story is just really inspirational. They're really great people. And um, we just thought it'd be awesome to have them come and share uh, today. And Ellen's going to uh, share God's word with us. And then after the service, you're interested in hearing a little bit more of their work, uh, what they're doing in Doña Shanita. You could huddle up in Guest Central. They'll show a five-minute video about the work that they're doing. They're planting a church uh, in the middle of abject poverty, and uh, you can you can just hear a little bit of their story, ask questions, because maybe God might be tugging some of your hearts to a life change or a calling to fulfill a God's call, God's call in your life in a special way. So, without any further ado, I'd like to uh, put up a warm Peoria Vineyard welcome for Ellen Benfield. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Ben's getting me a little teary eyed. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've known their family a long time. Um, two of their kids were in our wedding, so. Anyway, my name is Ellen, as has been mentioned, and as you can see, we have two beautiful sons, four-year-old Ethan and one-year-old August, and they're a handful. And so this morning, I just kind of wanted to start thinking about, you know that feeling you get when you lose something important, when you're just like, oh, I think it's lost. I hate that feeling, and I just get that feeling more often than I would like, because my one-year-old August, he's just a grabber, and he really likes keys. He likes electronics. He likes cell phones. And during small group a few weeks back, he snagged my keys out of my pocket, and there was a lot going on, and I didn't notice. And so in our church in in Mazatlan, we found out that people's homes are sort of humble, they're small, they're, you know, they're made out of concrete, and it's actually very um, hard for someone to invite someone into their home. So to say to a neighbor, oh, come over for dinner, like no one does that. You might have a party outside, or you might... um, just enjoy some time, life together out at a different place. But to go inside someone's home is a big deal. So for small groups, it was actually really hard for people to think about hosting a small group in their home. So to get around that, we host all the small groups at the church. And so we have a few different groups that meet around the church at the same time. And we have a lot of fun, but there's always a lot going on. And little toddlers besides just August, lots of them running around in between and running up to mom and dad and different things going on. So August grabbed my keys, and I didn't realize it, and I thought, I'm sure I left them in the car, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm sure they're there. I didn't. I looked around. I didn't see them. So Kyle locks up the church. We're getting in the car. I look in the car. They're not in the car. Like, oh, man. Okay, I'm sure I left them at home. They've got to be at home. If they're not in the church, they're not in the car, they're at home. So we go home, and I look at home. They're not in my little key cubby. They're not in my pockets. They're not in the laundry, and I'm thinking, Oh, no, it's it's such a bad feeling. You know, it's like the feeling when you get up in front of a bunch of people to preach for the first time. (laughs) It's just not very comfortable. (laughs) I was thinking, like, you know, is somebody going to break into our house? Is somebody going to steal our car? Do we have to go get all new locks made? What a pain. 
I was just not very, it didn't feel very peaceful. And three days later, a friend of mine came and knocked on the door. I had been praying this whole time, like, oh, God, I know you know where my keys are. Could you just please find them so we don't have to get new locks made? And um, So a friend came and knocked on the door and said, Ellen, you know what? I was just getting ready to start cooking a meal at the church, and I found your keys shoved in underneath the burner of the stove. And luckily, I found them before I turned the stove on. So I did get my keys back. But I just want to focus on that feeling for a minute. You know that sinking, like, oh, dread, your stomach just starts to turn into a knot? It's like the feeling you get when you first hear about a wreck, but you don't know any of the details. For instance, my husband Kyle, a few weeks ago, also called me, or maybe you even just sent me a text. Ethan and I were in a wreck. That's all he said. Like, oh, great. You know, I'm thinking, are they laying bloody on the side of the road? Do I need to call the hospital? What do I do? It turns out that, you know, a semi lost his brakes and he hit a van. No, he hit a car that hit a van, that hit a bus that they were in. So they were fine. I mean, they felt a little bump. But you know that feeling when you don't know, like when someone that you love is sick and you're waiting for the diagnosis, you're waiting for the doctor to tell you what's going on. It's just such a a horrible feeling. It's like the world seems to just stop for a minute and all your priorities, your to-do list suddenly seems not important. And it's a very scary feeling. It's a very desperate and out-of-control feeling. And right now, we're in a series on the Psalms. And the Psalms in the Bible are poems. They're songs. They're passionate words. And other parts of the Bible have a lot of teaching or have stories. But the Psalms are really just people just living out their emotions, sharing with God how they really feel on the inside. And all the emotions, the whole gamut's in there, from joy to frustration, praising God to yelling at God sadness, happiness, it's all there. And I love the Psalms. I highly recommend praying them out loud on a daily basis. This has been just a really powerful practice for me in my life. And memorizing them, I find as the mother of two little kids that I don't have time always to sit down and do my little devotional. It seems like as soon as I open the Bible, somebody wakes up from their nap and needs me. So I love memorizing Psalms because then while I'm hanging up my laundry, I can be praying the Psalms out loud and We don't have a dryer in Mexico. We don't need one. The sun is really strong. So in the Bible, many of the most passionate psalms were written by a man named King David. And going back to that sinking feeling, he really knew and understood that feeling in a pretty profound way. So we're going to read together uh, one of his psalms. The first half we're going to read together, Psalm 63. This is a passionate poem by King David, one of my favorite psalms. So let's let's just read this. God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, and with singing lips my mouth will praise me. Well, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak to us this morning. I pray that your presence would be here, that every single heart would be touched by you this morning, that we are emotional people. We're not, we're not static, and, and David was an emotional person, and the Bible is an emotional book. And I pray that that this morning that you will speak to us on a very real, physical, emotional level, that we will feel your presence this morning. Just pray for encouragement this morning. Just pray that you would lift us up. Help us to trust you and feel your presence 
And I just thank you for your goodness, Jesus. We just pray for more of you. I pray that it would be your words that come out of my mouth this morning. Lord. Bring your kingdom. Thank you. Amen. Um, so the sermon this morning is called, I'm so hungry and thirsty, but God, you alone, or you are so satisfying. And King David probably wrote this psalm later in life when he was going through a tough time. So he had several sons, and if you read the account of King David in First and Second Samuel in the Bible, it's a very fascinating, interesting account. Um, he has lots of family problems. And one of his sons is rebellious and decides he wants to take over the throne. So David's the king. He hears, okay, your son is coming with a huge army to attack and take over. He wants to, you know, kill you and become the king. So David and his entire palace, they pack up in an instant and they flee. They run out into the desert, out into the wilderness. And as you can imagine, they're in a very scary place. There's so much fear of the unknown around them. They don't know if they're going to survive. They don't know if they're going to survive the desert. They don't know if they're going to survive the attack by this rebellious son. They don't know if they're going to live. David doesn't know if his son's going to live. But he's seeking God, and that's what I love about the psalm. He says, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. It's not just like a, oh, I'd like to know more about that. It's like, oh, I need this so badly. And I love the next line, too. My soul thirsts for you. And I imagine David's out fleeing in the desert. He's probably physically thirsty. I mean, they didn't have Lunchables just to, you know, throw in your bag and take with you. There was no 7-Eleven where they could just stop and buy a Slurpee. I mean, I think, like, if they had to leave on a journey, they probably had to kill a bunch of cows and wrap them in salt and get them, you know, all the meat in some kind of form that they could take. And they wouldn't have had time to do that. And thinking about water, I don't know how much water you could try to carry, but water is really heavy. And if you're running through the desert with a bunch of people, I imagine that that was a pretty thirsty place. And I kind of get that because in Mazatlan, where I live, it's pretty dry. We have a rainy season. It should start any day now, and it rains every night usually. We usually get a couple storms, but mostly the rain's just at night from June through August. And then September through May, we don't get a drop. This past year, we had one freak storm in February, but that's been it. No rain. So as you can imagine, everything is dusty, it is dry, it is brown. And um, Mexico also has a different water system. And here we're so blessed. You go to the faucet, you turn on the water, there's water. Always hot, cold, drinkable, it's wonderful. And in Mexico, the water system, they have water in, in Mazatlan at the street, the municipal water system, but they don't turn it on all the time. It's usually only at night. So each house has a giant tank on the roof, and the water's turned on at night, and it fills up the tank on the roof, and that's the water that you have for the whole day. So we figured out pretty quickly that if I do three loads of laundry, we don't have any water for the rest of the day. So you kind of have to think things out. But sometimes they turn the water off for a few days repairing a pipe, and they don't always necessarily tell everyone. So you're kind of stuck for for a few you know hours or days without water. And boy, you don't realize how much you miss water until you don't have it. I remember one specific e- evening when Ethan was smaller and we had been working out in the yard and we collected a bunch of sticks and made a little bonfire, got out some marshmallows and roasted our marshmallows and Ethan just had marshmallow all over his face, his hands, his clothes. We get inside, there's no water. It was just like, oh, what a horrible feeling. So I understand the idea a little bit of being without water and it makes sense to me. So David's out in the desert with all his people. I assume they're looking for water. And I just think, like, if any of you guys have ever seen a movie with a desert scene where somebody has to walk through the desert, I think of Clint Eastwood in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly when he walks through the desert and his mouth is just 
cracked and prickly and his tongue's giant. He's got spit dried on his mouth and he's just looking for any water anywhere and you think he's going to die. I mean, I don't know if it got that bad for David, but I imagine if I were in the desert and water was a need, I would be like, God, we need some water. I got all these people. Could you send us a spring? Could you do the Moses style water from a rock? Like, let's, let's work something out. But instead, God's saying, or David's saying, no, give me you. My soul thirsts for you. I would be like, my soul thirsts for water. I need some water. But David says, you. So this is so incredible because it's unexpected. It's not what I would do, I think, in that situation. And Jesus is able to satisfy us on that basic of a level. And I think that's what's so incredible. Jesus in John chapter 4 um, is the story of, John, of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at a well. And it's a very famous story. It's a story that's often used to illustrate Jesus' attitude towards women, towards the downtrodden of society, towards outcasts, towards sinners. But today I kind of want to look at a different, more physical aspect of the story. So we're going to look at John 4, 13 and 14. I'll just read it. Jesus answered to the woman who he's talking to, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's amazing. I mean, just think, so far this morning, we've been up for, you know, some of us more hours than others, maybe an hour, maybe four hours, maybe five. How many times have you had something to drink so far this morning? You know, a coffee, a latte, a water, um, juice, you know, whatever you like to drink, tea. And Jesus is saying, you know, I can satisfy on that level that often. I mean, we get thirsty again. I take a drink and I still want more. But Jesus is claiming that his water is better. There's something incredible happening here. We're going to return to that. But let's go back to our psalm for now. David remembers, and he says in the psalm, I have seen your power. That's part of what he says. I've seen your power and your glory in the sanctuary. He's saying, my life stinks right now. I get that. But I know that your love is better than life. And I know that knowing you is worth dying for. Because for David, there was a pretty good chance that while he's out there running in the desert fleeing, his life was actually in danger. There was a good chance that he wasn't going to make it out of that desert alive. But he's not allowing himself to be lost in that scary, out-of-control circumstance. Instead, he's saying, I choose to praise you despite what I'm going through. The psalm says, I will lift up my hands. But returning to this idea of water and food and satisfaction at that basic of a level, I really love verse 5. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Man, that is such an incredible, powerful verse. For me, it's, it's huge because I love to eat. I just, food is so wonderful. I'm, I, at breakfast, I'm thinking about, oh, what can I have for lunch? At lunch, I'm thinking about, what can I have for supper? And in between, I'm just thinking about chocolate. I love food. It's so delicious. Our family did something kind of fun this past Thanksgiving. You know, we had the very traditional, stereotypical Thanksgiving with all the aunts and uncles and grandparents together. And, um, and so we're all sitting around, or before we sat down at the table, my mom got out the scale and put it in the kitchen. I think it was mom that started that. And so we all did a weigh-in. We weighed ourselves beforehand, and then we went, sat down, ate our dinner happily, all the turkey that we wanted and mashed potatoes, and we came back and weighed ourselves again. And I think the average was like five pounds of food that we'd actually each consumed. So... This is saying, with the richest of foods, think like Thanksgiving feast good. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, I'm that good. Wow. As with the richest of foods. That's incredible. So serving God is that good, like turkey coma good. I mean, I don't know if I'm always there. So let's go back to John 4, because Jesus has something to say about food to this woman at the well as well. 
So Jesus has been talking to the Samaritan woman, and then she goes back to her town to tell them, I just met Jesus, and he's amazing. You've got to come see this guy. And meanwhile, Jesus' disciples have been off doing something else, and they come find Jesus, and they say in John 4, 31, Rabbi, eat something. But he says to them, Oh, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So then his disciples say to each other, Oh, did somebody bring him food? I mean, that's a pretty basic, understandable question, right? But Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. So the disciples were talking here on a totally physical level. They're just like, hey, it's after lunch. Doesn't seem like you brought any food. Jesus, are you hungry? And then he gives them this crazy answer. And he's talking on a totally different level. He's so metaphorical. Because what Jesus is really saying is, guys, you don't get it. There is an entire village of people. They're all lost in their terrible choices that have been weighing them down and keeping them from the real life that God has for them. And they're about to come know me, the real life. And I'm about to change them completely. This town will never be the same. And this town is going to influence all of Christianity. He's saying, and you're worried about lunch? Come on, guys. There's something huge happening here. I think that's pretty incredible. And also this verse really encourages me because Jesus seems to be saying, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a metaphor here. This field is ripe for harvest. He's talking about people's hearts and saying, your friends, your family members, oh, and the people that you're ministering to, your neighbors, they're ready and waiting to hear about how much I love them and how I can work my power in their lives. And the best part is I've been working in them their whole lives. You're not even going to have to do the hardest part. You get to do the fun part which is such an incredible, encouraging verse. But still, is Jesus really claiming that doing his work, that following the Holy Spirit is so good you forget about lunch? I mean, how often are we there? Let's just be honest. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I might be there. I admit, when you see the Holy Spirit touch somebody for the first time and they have this realization like, wow, God is real. Not only is God real, he knows me. Not only does he know me, he cares about me. Not only does he care about me, he loves me, and he wants to work in my life. That is an incredible place. I love seeing that happen, especially in these poor people that we're working with. They've just been told for their whole lives that they're nothing. And to see them realize, wow, no, I am precious, I am valued, I have worth, that is an incredible place, I admit it. But a lot of times, I just have to be honest, Mexican preachers have a tendency to go long, 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 long. And you can smell the delicious Mexican soup, pozole, that's, that's working its magic in the kitchen. And I just think, as soon as you stop talking, we're going to have lunch. And my kids are hungry. Would you just come on, get, to, get over it? So I'm not always there. But sometimes, I actually had a recent experience that was pretty profound for me, and where I felt like I actually got to be a little more in that place than I ever had been before. So during Lent this past spring, which is the 40 days before Easter, when traditionally Christians give something up or fast, um, Kyle and I felt called to do some fasting. We've never made it, you know, a super religious thing. We don't do like the, the fish on Fridays and, you know, that. But we just, we felt called. We felt like God was asking us to do something specific. And so I decided that part of my fast was going to be 
that on Tuesdays I wasn't going to eat anything. So from Monday night, sundown Monday night until sundown Tuesday night, 24 hours, I didn't eat any food. And on Tuesdays we have, it's sort of our prayer day. We have um, the churches opened up at 5 o'clock in the, in the afternoon and the evening. And people come and they, we all pray together for the neighborhood. We pray together for the schools, for the teachers. We just pray for anybody who wants prayer, anybody who would like to pray. It's sort of informal. Sometimes two people come, sometimes 20 people come. But it doesn't matter because it's kind of just relaxed. It's just an option there. And honestly, my feet had been dragging to those meetings before. I'd just been tired and uninspired, and I'm thinking, it's 5 o'clock. I'd rather be worrying about dinner, but I know everyone's getting off work now. is a good time for them. They don't have, their kids are out of school, but uh, I just, I was not very excited about it. But then during Lent, when I wasn't eating, at 5 o'clock, I only had an hour left of my fast, and then I could go eat. I just had this one prayer meeting to get through, and then I could have my food again. And I just found, like... My attitude towards these meetings was flipped upside down. It was so exciting. The Holy Spirit just came and was moving. Not that he wasn't before, but I think I was just more open to it. My attitude was in a better place because I wasn't so focused on me and myself and what I need. But I was able to see beyond that, which is really incredible because I'm not usually there. And there were most of those meetings went way late. I mean, we didn't get home usually until 7, well after the last rays had sunk below the horizon. And it, it didn't even bother me. I wasn't mad. I wasn't like, oh, I could have had my food an hour earlier. I get extra chocolate or something. So I think it, it can happen, but it's, it's, it's an amazing place. I mean, God's there. He can satisfy us. But another side of it is, is looking at the beginning of the verse that says, I will be satisfied. Because that's an acknowledgement that God's goodness is there, even if we don't necessarily feel it in the moment. So David's living in the tension. I mean, he's not in a good place. We can all imagine. He's saying, you know, this is not where I wanted to be, running through the desert. I'm an old king. I should be honored. I should be living in my palace with all my, you know, people that adore me instead of running for my life through the desert for my son who I love that's trying to kill me. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks that's a fun place to be. But yet he's acknowledging, I will be satisfied. He still sees God's goodness in that. Because life isn't simple, and there is a lot of tension. So I just want us all to just imagine for a minute. Think about total satisfaction. What, what would that look like for you? What is it that you long for? Think about that just for a minute. What do you dream about? Maybe you're already fairly satisfied, but maybe some of us are really longing for companionship, for the next promotion, for success, or for money, maybe for healing. Maybe it's something really simple, food. Maybe we're hungry. So the question is, can God really satisfy that desire? The Bible seems to say yes. Psalm 103 says that you satisfy my desires with good things. Paul in Philippians 4 says that he's learned to be satisfied in all circumstances. And this verse, I will be satisfied, sort of implies a choice. We all know people who are unsatisfied no matter where they are. There are the people that say, Oh, man, I hate school. It's so miserable. As soon as I get out of school, then I'll be happy. Then they get their first job. Oh, I hate my boss. This is so miserable. As soon as I get a promotion, then I'll be happy. Then they get a promotion. Oh, man, I'm so lonely. As soon as I get a perfect husband or wife, then I'll be happy. And they're never really living in the now and happy and satisfied with what God's doing in them in the now. So we don't want to be that way. God's really been working on this in me lately, being satisfied with where I am. And I think part of the reason that that's been tough for me 
is that working with poor people really exaggerates blessings. And it's hard to wrestle with that sometimes and come to grips with what that means. Uh, I just read a quote from Hugh Jackman, who's my secret celebrity crush, that he's been doing some work in Ethiopia. <laughs> Kyle knows. It's okay. And, um, he was saying, you know, he has all this money and, and success and wealth and ability to do whatever he wants. And then he's in Ethiopia working with people who just don't even have food. And he was just talking about what kind of a, ta- a challenge and attention that is. And it, it, that's a hard place to be in. But it's not just physical blessings. It's not just, you know, money or whatever. I'm so thankful for my husband. I have a really incredible, wonderful husband. And most of the women that were that are in our colonia, a lot of them, not I shouldn't say most, but a lot of them just have low life husbands. They're just society just sets these men up to fail. And it's really sad to see. So I would sometimes feel like, well, I don't want to brag about how awesome my husband is. So I kind of felt like I needed to talk Kyle down. Oh, Kyle didn't make the bed. And these women are like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> My husband, like, drinks all our money away, and you're worried about the bed? Oh, come on, Ellen. But satisfaction is such an incredible thing because it doesn't make us feel guilty. We don't have to, to justify what God gives us. Instead, it inspires generosity, and it makes us feel so thankful and grateful for what we have. It's a focus shift because God has just incredibly generously, um, just lavishly piled all of his blessings on us. And I know for me, I can have a tendency to look at somebody else like, wow, that car is really nice, or oh man, that house is so sweet, I would love to have that, whatever, you know, whatever somebody has. But instead, when we, we have this focus shift and we're satisfied with where we are, then suddenly our eyes open to all the people who are looking at us saying that same thing. And, and the desire opens in our hearts to really be generous and loving to those kinds of people. And on one level, even if we're like Job sick, you know, laying on the floor naked with sores all over our bodies and our entire family just died and we have no money, even in that place there's something to be satisfied about because God sent his precious son Jesus to die just for us. And that in itself is a blessing so huge that most of the time our brains can't even compute how incredible that is. We have so much to be thankful for and satisfied with in our lives, especially here in this beautiful city. Peoria is just gorgeous, and and the summer's just starting, and we're in this incredible church that loves Jesus, that looks to the work of the Holy Spirit. There's so much to be thankful for here. And the other reality is that Satan wants us to focus on what's missing in our lives, but God's calling us to be satisfied in him where we are now. Because only he can truly satisfy. He knows that that job, that promotion, that perfect man or woman isn't really what's going to satisfy us because he has the real food. He has the real water. It's such an incredible picture. So we're going to move to the second half of this psalm. And let's read it again out loud together. Psalm 63. um, We're going to read 6 through 11 and finish the psalm off. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings, and I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will glory in God, and all who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Wow, it's kind of different from the first half. But I think the, the beginning is powerful because of what we think about at night. 
He says, on my bed, I remember you, and I think of you through the watches of the night. Well, normally at night, we would be sleeping. So if you're not sleeping, you're awake thinking. And what do you do when you're awake thinking? Worrying, right? Worrying about the future, money, kids, school, whatever. But it's a kind of a worried place because happy thoughts usually put us to sleep. I mean, nobody stays awake thinking, oh, I'm so happy and blessed tonight. <laughs> you know, when we have insomnia, there's usually some worry or stress associated with that. So David had plenty to worry about. I mean, he's thinking, am I going to die? Is my son going to die? But yet, he's remembering God in that place. He's remembering, God, you are my help, and you've comforted me in the past. This isn't, you've delivered me. This isn't the first time that I've had to run for my life and hide in the desert. That was sort of a pattern in David's life, unfortunately, which most of that had been 30 years ago or 40 years before. But he's saying, you know, if you were faithful and delivered me then, you'll be faithful and deliver me now, and I'm going to trust you. If I had a dollar for every time that somebody asked me about the drug violence in Mexico, I would be so rich. That's probably the most common question that we get, people who hear a story and, and are terrified. And the reality is that Kyle and I felt a very strong call from God to go and be where we are. And every time I hear a new report about some potential danger or some horrible crime, Satan tries to come and steal my peace. And I can feel that not just forming in my stomach because Satan wants me to live in fear. He wants me to run away from my calling and from what God has for us. But I have to remember in that moment, no, God has been so faithful in the past. Through the worst of the drug violence, which actually it's better now than it was a few years ago. I mean, a few years ago, there were some shootings within walking distance of our home. But through that whole time, we never saw any of it. We never felt threatened. We never felt like our lives were in danger. We never felt like any of it was you know, attacking us. And more than that, I didn't even feel afraid. It seemed like Jesus was just so close to us saying, no, I have you where I want you. You don't need to worry about this. And obviously, I mean, we need to be smart. And we always tell people, don't buy or sell drugs in Mexico. But Jesus just (laughs) filled me with his peace. I didn't worry about it. So then the psalm does a strange thing that happens a lot in the psalms. It turns vengeful. It gets angry, kind of bloody. And this happens a lot. And I used to have a lot of trouble with this. I mean, like that verse that says, they'll be, become food for jackals. I mean, I don't want anybody to be ripped apart by wild dogs. That sounds horrible. So then I moved to Mexico. And now when I pray these psalms, I feel like I know that there is real evil out there that I can physically think about and pray against. So when I pray these psalms out loud now, I think about, in these parts, I think about kidnappers. I think about corrupt cops who accept bribes from kidnappers. And we know people who've been kidnapped. I mean, we've never been threatened. We feel like God's really protected us. But we hear stories. We know people who've been taken away and their family doesn't know where they are. One of my neighbor's brothers just gone in the night. His entire, his, they've never found him. It's been two years. They don't know where he is. Probably been killed. We know people have been taken out into the mountains to be, to be threatened so that they're just to scare them. Covered in gasoline, their shoes taken away and they had to walk back in the cold without any shoes. Um, We know a missionary who's been in a very different part of Mexico, I will say, who's been threatened at gunpoint by five drug guys, and they told him, we're going to kill you and your entire team today. Yeah, I pray against those guys. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I want them to be ripped apart by wild dogs, but I pray against them. And even if your life isn't that violent, you know, here in central Illinois, there's still an enemy out there who's waiting to destroy I mean, so many of these men, like I mentioned, we see them struggle, we see them fight, we see them wrestle, and they take baby steps towards Jesus and then just get yanked back down. Man, I pray against that. It is heartbreaking 
to watch their families go through these cycles again and again and again. So, yeah, that's the power of the Psalms because it reminds us to pray against evil in a way that we wouldn't necessarily remember to do before or to do on our own. The Bible says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and I will say powerful enough to bring down a drug lord. And by the way, I do want to finish out that story about the missionary. Not only did God totally deliver him and his team from that scary, scary situation, but um, in, in an incredible way, so that five minutes later down the road, they were all like rejoicing and praising God for his incredible deliverance and saying, Satan, you can't scare us. We're not afraid of you, and we're not going to let this hinder us in any way from doing what God's called us to do. But the next week, a different cartel kind of moved in for a little ways, and there was a, a little rumble, and four out of those five guys were killed a week later. I mean, that's not ripped apart by wild dogs, but I think that's as close as you get. So God is, is powerful. He loves his people. He delivers. He's righteous. But he's also so good. And the reality is he's better than we can comprehend. He cares about us, and he knows our most intimate desires and longings, and he's able to satisfy them. That's what's so incredible about this psalm. Because he satisfies more than food, more than water, something so basic that we think I, we can't live without. But yet he is saying, I'm just as important. I'm more important than those things, and I will satisfy you more. He satisfies more than intimacy, money, power, prestige, fame, success, everything. And sometimes we don't want to believe that. Um, we get stuck in guilt. I don't know about you. Uh, I can feel guilty sometimes. Like Ben said, you know, in the beginning, if I start feeling down, you know, and we feel like that too. And I think of some incredible missionaries I know that live in Brazil on this river and don't have anything. And I think they're real missionaries. You know, there's always someone to look at. But we get stuck in this place of like, oh man, once I get fixed up, once I'm better, when I read the Bible more, you know, then God can use me and then I'll know his satisfaction. But the reality is, that that's not a healthy attitude because he loves us as we are right now today. And he has the satisfaction that's from him, in him, totally based in him, right now, in this moment, in the pain, in the frustration, in our brokenness. It's incredible. God has been teaching me this lesson to be satisfied in him regardless of the circumstance. And that's not always easy. Um, it's, it's almost hard to let yourself know that God is that good. But... I found that this year, so far, 2012, has been the best year of my life. I have never been happier. I, I love what I do. I love where I am. I love who I am as God's daughter. I just feel so much of Jesus just smiling on me. I always tell, I tell both my kids, you're my favorite. If I ask Ethan, who's my favorite? I am. And I say the same thing to August. And I just feel like I'm God's favorite. You know, I, he probably tells you guys that too, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> and that's what I feel, just this learning to be satisfied in him. And it's such a good place. So I just want to encourage us all, just a practical tip. Let's pray this psalm together out loud every day this week. I'm going to pray it. I want you guys to pray it. When you go home, pray it out loud. And I, I just want to encourage you as you're praying it to think about your desires. Think about your worries. Think about... Just whatever's bothering you, and just bring it all to God. Just picture him sitting on a chair, and you just take all your desires, all your worries, everything, take it to him, and then ask him to come and satisfy you right now where you are. Uh, and pray this prayer too. God, I want to know how much you love me, but fill me as much as I can understand. Because his love is so good, it's like our brains just don't even understand. It would be like sandblasting a, a soda cracker. We just can't even get how incredible his love is. It doesn't make sense. It's so good. So let's pray for that and really look for that this week. So let me just pray. Holy Spirit, 
you are so good. You are so incredibly good. You know us. You love us. You see our circumstances. You see our problems. You know what we're waiting for. But still, you want to satisfy us at such a deep level. That is just such an incredible blessing. And I just pray that you would inspire us all this week. I pray that this psalm would really encourage and inspire us as we pray it this week. I pray that we would feel and experience your Holy Spirit as we're praying and as we're, as we're really seeking your love and your face. God, I just pray that every person here would feel how much you love them, Father. Fill them all with just an understanding of the incredible love that you just pour on us, Jesus. I just pray that each person would hear these words, you're my favorite, and know that it's true. Know that they are, they are so loved and beautiful and that you are just so pleased with who they are. God, I just pray that we would all feel that and live in that today and be, be encouraged and be satisfied in your presence. And Jesus, I just also ask that you would just bless our offerings this morning. I pray that um, you would use them to further your kingdom so that more people can know your incredible love. And I just pray that you would just bless us all this morning. Thank you so much, Jesus. Amen.